This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kim Zuckert. Tales of the Brass Hedgehog. Hedgehog.net. Dear Enemy by Jean Webster. Part 2. The John Greer Home, February 22nd. My dear Gordon, your vigorous and expensive message is here. I know that you have plenty of money, but that is no reason why you should waste it so frivolously. When you feel so bursting with talk that only a hundred-word telegram will relieve an explosion, at least turn it into a night lettergram. My orphans can use the money if you don't need it. Also, my dear sir, please use a trifle of common sense. Of course I can't chuck the asylum in the casual manner you suggest. It wouldn't be fair to Judy and Jervis. If you will pardon the statement, they have been my friends for many more years than you, and I have no intention of letting them go hang. I came up here in a spirit of, well, say adventure, and I must see the venture through. You wouldn't like me if I were a short sport. This doesn't mean, however, that I am sentencing myself for life. I am intending to resign just as soon as the opportunity comes. But really, I ought to feel somewhat gratified that the Pendletons were willing to trust me with such a responsible post. Though you, my dear sir, do not suspect it, I possess considerable executive ability and more common sense than is visible on the surface. If I chose to put my whole soul into this enterprise, I could make the rippingest superintendent that any hundred and eleven orphans ever had. I suppose you think that's funny. It's true. Judy and Jervis know it, and that's why they asked me to come. So, you see, when they have shown so much confidence in me, I can't throw them over in quite the unceremonious fashion you suggest. So long as I'm here, I'm going to accomplish just as much as it is given one person to accomplish every twenty-four hours. I'm going to turn the place over to my successor with things moving fast in the right direction. But in the meantime, please don't wash your hands of me under the belief that I'm too busy to be homesick. For I'm not. I wake up every morning and stare at Mrs. Lippett's wallpaper in a sort of daze, feeling as though it's some bad dream and I'm not really here. What on earth was I thinking of to turn my back upon my nice, cheerful own home and the good times that by rights are mine? I frequently agree with your opinion of my sanity. But why, may I ask, should you be making such a fuss? You wouldn't be seeing me in any case. Worcester is quite as far from Washington as the John Greer home, and I will add, for your further comfort, that whereas there is no man in the neighborhood of this asylum who admires red hair, in Worcester there are several. Therefore, most difficult of men, please be appeased. I didn't come entirely to spite you. I wanted an adventure in life, and oh dear, oh dear, I'm having it. Please write soon and cheer me up. Yours in sackcloth, Sally. The John Greer Home, February 24th. Dear Judy, You tell Jervis that I am not hasty at forming judgments. I have a sweet, sunny, unsuspicious nature, and I like everybody almost. But no one could like that Scotch doctor. He never smiles. He paid me another visit this afternoon. I invited him to accommodate himself in one of Mrs. Lippett's electric blue chairs, and then sat down opposite to enjoy the harmony. He was dressed in a mustard-colored homespun with a dash of green and a glint of yellow in the weave, a heather mixture calculated to add life to a dull scotch moor. Purple socks and a red tie with an amethyst pin completed the picture. Clearly your paragon of a doctor is not going to be of much assistance in pulling up the aesthetic tone of this establishment. During the fifteen minutes of his call he succinctly outlined all the changes he wishes to see accomplished in this institution. 
He, forsooth! And what, may I ask, are the duties of a superintendent? Is she merely a figurehead to take orders from the visiting physician? It's up with the bonnets of McBride and McRae. I am indignantly yours, Sally. The John Greer Home, Monday. Dear Dr. McRae, I am sending this note by Sadie Kate, as it seems impossible to reach you by telephone. Is the person who calls herself Mrs. McGurk and hangs up in the middle of a sentence your housekeeper? If she answers the telephone often, I don't see how your patients have any patients left. As you did not come this morning, per agreement, and the painters did come, I was fain to choose a cheerful corn color to be placed upon the walls of your new laboratory room. I trust there is nothing unhygienic about corn color. Also, if you can spare a moment this afternoon, kindly motor yourself to Dr. Bryce's on Water Street, and look at the dentist's chair and appurtenances which are to be had at half price. If all of the pleasant paraphernalia of his profession were here, in a corner of your laboratory, Dr. Bryce could finish his hundred and eleven new patients with more dispatch than if we had to transport them separately to Water Street. Don't you think that's a useful idea? It came to me in the middle of the night— but as I never happened to buy a dentist's chair before, I'd appreciate some professional advice. Yours truly, S. McBride. The John Greer Home, March 1st. Dear Judy, do stop sending me telegrams. Of course I know that you want to know everything that is happening, and I would send a daily bulletin, but I truly don't find a minute. I am so tired when night comes that if it weren't for Jane's strict discipline, I should go to bed with my clothes on. Later, when we slip a little more into routine, and I can be sure that my assistants are all running off their respective jobs, I shall be the regularest correspondent you ever had. It was five days ago, wasn't it, that I wrote? Things have been happening in those five days. The McCray and I have mapped out a plan of campaign, and are stirring up this place to its sluggish depths. I like him less and less. But we've declared a sort of working truce, and the man is a worker— I always thought I had sufficient energy myself, but when an improvement is to be introduced, I toil along panting in his wake. He is as stubborn and tenacious and bulldoggish as a Scotchman can be, but he does understand babies. That is, he understands their physiological aspects. He hasn't any more feeling for them personally than for so many frogs that he might happen to be dissecting. Do you remember Jervis's holding forth one evening for an hour or so about our doctor's beautiful humanitarian ideals? C'est à rire. The man merely regards the J.G.H. as his own private laboratory, where he can try out scientific experiments with no loving parents to object. I shouldn't be surprised any day to find him introducing scarlet fever cultures into the baby's porridge in order to test a newly invented serum. Of the house staff, the only two who strike me as really efficient are the primary teacher and the furnace man. You should see how the children run to Miss Matthews and beg for caresses, and how painstakingly polite they are to the other teachers. Children are quick to size up character. I shall be very embarrassed if they are too polite to me. Just as soon as I get my bearings a little, and know exactly what we need, I am going to accomplish some widespread discharging. I should like to begin with Miss Snaith, but I discovered that she is the niece of one of our most generous trustees, and isn't exactly dischargeable. She's a vague, chinless, pale-eyed creature who talks through her nose and breathes through her mouth. She can't say anything decisively and then stop. Her sentences all trail off into incoherent murmurings. Every time I see the woman, I feel an almost uncontrollable desire to take her by the shoulders and shake some decision into her. 
and Miss Snaith is the one who has had entire supervision of the seventeen little tots aged from two to five. But anyway, even if I can't discharge her, I have reduced her to a subordinate position without her being aware of the fact. The doctor has found for me a charming girl who lives a few miles from here and comes in every day to manage the kindergarten. She has big, gentle brown eyes like a cow and motherly manners. She is just nineteen, and the babies love her. At the head of the nursery I have placed a jolly, comfortable, middle-aged woman who has reared five of her own and has a hand with bairns. Our doctor also found her, you see. He is useful. She is technically under Miss Snaith, but is usurping dictatorship in a satisfactory fashion. I can now sleep at night without being afraid that my babies are being inefficiently murdered. You see, our reforms are getting started, and while I acquiesce with all the intelligence at my command to our doctor's basic scientific upheavals, still they sometimes leave me cold. The problem that keeps churning and churning in my mind is— how can I ever instill enough love and warmth and sunshine into those bleak little lives? And I'm not sure that the doctor's science will accomplish that. One of our most pressing intelligent needs just now is to get our records into coherent form. The books have been most outrageously unkept. Mrs. Lippett had a big black account book into which she jumbled any facts that happened to drift her way as to the children's family, their conduct, and their health, but for weeks at a time she didn't trouble to make an entry. If any adopting family wants to know a child's parentage, half the time we can't even tell where we got the child. Where did you come from, baby dear? The blue sky opened and I am here, is an exact description of their arrival. We need a field worker to travel about the country and pick up all the hereditary statistics she can about our chicks. It will be an easy matter, as most of them have relatives. What do you think of Janet Ware for the job? You remember what a shark she was in economics? She simply battened on tables and charts and surveys. I have also to inform you that the John Greer home is undergoing a very searching physical examination, and it is the shocking truth that out of the twenty-eight poor little rats so far examined, only five are up to specification, and the five have not been here long. Do you remember the ugly green reception room on the first floor? I've removed as much of its greenness as possible and fitted it up as the doctor's laboratory. It contains scales and drugs and, most professional touch of all, a dentist chair and one of those sweet grinding machines. Bought them second-hand from Dr. Bryce in the village, who was putting in, for the gratification of his own patients, white enamel and nickel plate. That drilling machine is looked upon as an infernal engine, and I as an infernal monster for instituting it. But every little victim who is discharged filled may come to my room every day for a week and receive two pieces of chocolate. Though our children are not conspicuously brave, they are, we discover, fighters. Young Thomas Kehoe nearly bit the doctor's thumb in two after kicking over a table full of instruments. It requires physical strength as well as skill to be dental adviser to the J.G.H. Interrupted here to show a benevolent lady over the institution, she asked, Fifty irrelevant questions took up an hour of my time, and then finally wiped away a tear and left a dollar for my poor little charges. So far, my poor little charges are not enthusiastic about these new reforms. They don't care much for the sudden draft of fresh air that is blown in upon them, or the deluge of water. I'm shoving in two baths a week, and as soon as we collect tubs enough and a few extra faucets, they are going to get seven. But at least I have started one most popular reform. Our daily bill of fare has been increased, a charge deplored by the cook as causing trouble, and deplored by the rest of the staff as causing an immoral increase in expense. 
economy spelt in capitals has been the guiding principle of this institution for so many years that it has become a religion i assure my timid co-workers twenty times a day that owing to the generosity of our president the endowment has been exactly doubled and that i have vast sums besides from mrs pendleton for necessary purposes like ice cream but they simply can't get over the feeling that it is a wicked extravagance to feed these children the doctor and I have been studying with care the menus of the past, and we are filled with amazement at the mind that could have devised them. Here is one of her frequently recurring dinners. Boiled potatoes, boiled rice, blancmange. It's a wonder to me that the children are anything more than 111 little lumps of starch. Looking about this institution, one is moved to misquote Robert Browning. There may be heaven there must be hell. Meantime, there is the John Greer. Well, S. McB. The John Greer Home, Saturday. Dear Judy, Dr. Robin McRae and I fought another battle yesterday over a very trivial matter, in which I was right, and since then I have adopted for our doctor a special pet name. Good morning, enemy, was my greeting today, at which he was quite solemnly annoyed. He says he does not wish to be regarded as an enemy. He is not in the least antagonistic, so long as I mould my policy upon his wishes. We have two new children, Isadora Gutschneider and Max Yogg, given to us by the Baptist Ladies' Aid Society. Where on earth do you suppose those children picked up such a religion? I didn't want to take them, but the poor ladies were very persuasive, and they pay the princely sum of $4.50 per week per child. This makes 113, which makes us very crowded. I have half a dozen babies to give away. Find me some kind families who want to adopt. You know, it's very embarrassing not to be able to remember offhand how large your family is, but mine seems to vary from day to day like the stock market. I should like to keep it at about par. When a woman has more than a hundred children, she can't give them the individual attention they ought to have. Monday. This letter has been lying two days on my desk, and I haven't found the time to stick on a stamp. But now I seem to have a free evening ahead, so I will add a page or two before starting it on a pleasant journey to Florida. I'm just beginning to pick out individual faces among the children. It seemed at first as though I could never learn them. They looked so hopelessly cut out of one pattern, with those unspeakably ugly uniforms. Now please don't write back that you want the children put into new clothes immediately. I know you do. You've already told me five times. In about a month I shall be ready to consider the question, but just now their insides are more important than their outsides. There is no doubt about it. Orphans in the mass do not appeal to me. I'm beginning to be afraid that this famous mother instinct which we hear so much about was left out of my character. Children as children are dirty, spitty little things, and their noses all need wiping. Here and there I pick out a naughty, mischievous little one that awakens a flicker of interest, but for the most part they are just a composite blur of white face and blue check. With one exception, though, Sadie Kate Kilcoyne emerged from the mass the first day and bids fair to stay out for all time. She is my special little errand girl, and she furnishes me with all my daily amusement. No piece of mischief has been launched in this institution for the last eight years that did not originate in her abnormal brain. This young person has, to me, a most unusual history, though I understand it's common enough in foundling circles. She was discovered eleven years ago on the step of a 39th Street house asleep in a pasteboard box labeled Altman & Co. Sadie Kate Kilcoyne, aged five weeks, be kind to her, was neatly printed on the cover. 
The policeman who picked her up took her to Bellevue, where the foundlings are pronounced in the order of their arrival, Catholic, Protestant, Catholic, Protestant, with perfect impartiality. Our Sadie Kate, despite her name and blue Irish eyes, was made a Protestant, and here she is growing Irisher and Irisher every day, but, true to her christening, protesting loudly against every detail of life. Her two little black braids point in opposite directions. Her little monkey face is all screwed up with mischief. She is as active as a terrier, and you have to keep her busy every moment. Her record of badness occupies pages in the doomsday book. The last item reads, For stumping Maggie Gear to get a doorknob into her mouth, punishment, the afternoon spent in bed, and crackers for supper. It seems that Maggie Gear, fitted with a mouth of unusual stretching capacity, got the doorknob in but couldn't get it out. The doctor was called and cannily solved the problem with a buttered shoehorn. Muckle-mouthed Meg, he has dubbed the patient ever since. You can understand that my thoughts are anxiously occupied in filling every crevice of Sadie Kate's existence. There are about a million subjects that I ought to consult with the President about. I think it was very unkind of you and him to saddle me with your orphan asylum and run off south to play. It would serve you right if I did everything wrong. While you are traveling about in private cars and strolling in the moonlight on palm beaches— Please think of me in the drizzle of a New York march, taking care of a hundred and thirteen babies that by rights are yours, and be grateful. I remain for a limited time, S. McBride. Superintendent John Greer Home. Dear enemy, I am sending herewith, under separate cover, Sammy Spear, who got mislaid when you paid your morning visit. Miss Snaith brought him to light after you had gone. Please scrutinize his thumb. I never saw a felon, but I have diagnosed it as such. Yours truly, S. McBride. End of part two.